If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. He's regrettably engaged in, I think, some political brinksmanship, which is counterproductive and reckless. Okay, that was a little snippet of the Federal Public Safety Minister, Marco Medicino, an interview over the weekend with the uh, National Public Broadcaster. Uh, suggesting that that our next guest is engaging in some political brinksmanship and is acting in a reckless manner. Now, he's referring to Alberta's Justice Minister, Tyler Shandro, and some comments last week from the Alberta government outlaying the position vis-a-vis the federal government's proposed uh, ban on so-called assault-style weapons and the underlying mandatory buyback program that's meant to basically remove these firearms from those currently in possession of them. Now, the mandatory buyback, there's a one-year amnesty, so there's really nothing to enforce until basically a year from now. And we still don't know what the federal government's plan for implementing this is, who's going to administer this buyback program, how this is all going to work. Now, this all started with a letter from Marco Mendocino to Tyler Shandro asking for the province's assistance in implementing the buyback program. Alberta's response is basically, thanks, but no thanks. We're not inclined to help assist you implement this policy that we disagree with. That's prompted a lot of debate. Is this Alberta rejecting federal jurisdiction? Is this Alberta simply declining an invitation uh, from Ottawa to implement their policy? Well, joining us to talk about what Alberta's position is and reaction, obviously, to what the public safety minister has had to say, we are very pleased to welcome to the program Alberta's Minister of Justice, Tyler Shandra. Joining us on the line here this afternoon, Minister, good to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Oh, thanks. Good to be back. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Just some thoughts from you, first of all. Uh, The federal public safety minister suggested there's some political brinksmanship on your part, that uh, you've acted in a reckless manner. Your, Your reaction to that? Well, the only thing that's been reckless has been the fact that the federal government has done zero planning on this buyback program. Uh, The only abdicating that's going on is the federal government in refusing to properly plan. And that's why they've gotten desperate. And that's why through that desperation, they're trying to take our policing resources off the streets using the money that we spend as Albertans on policing to implement a program that they did zero planning on. I mean, are they, though? I think part of the criticism here is we don't know what Ottawa's plan is. I don't know if they know what their plan is, but to to what what certainty is there that that's how they would go about it? Yeah, I think they. that's why they are starting by implementing um, first in eastern Canada and PEI and working their way west because they're hoping that by the time they they get to western Canada, they're going to have it figured out. And I think that, that desperation by not having planned any of this at all that they're now trying to use our provincial policing dollars and our provincial police resources, taking folks off the streets, uh, meant to be keeping our community safe, and instead to implement their their program. Uh, but you, you're you're exactly right, the, and that's that's the problem that we don't know what their their plan is, other than what they proposed in the the letter from Minister Mendocino to to me. So basically, they, they've come up with this idea for the buyback program. Your position is that it's that it's their problem to solve, not Alberta's problem to solve. Yeah, that's exactly it. And and if they wanted to implement 
uh, a program to implement what uh, they their 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 jurisdiction when it comes to uh, the regulation of, of firearms. Don't take our policing resources off the street. Now, now Alberta is planning on intervening in some of the constitutional challenges against this whole scheme, and and so that that has to play out. But on the broader principle here, that the federal government has jurisdiction when it comes to the regulation of firearms. I mean, do, do you concede that point? This isn't about Alberta rejecting that that jurisdiction, is it? Well, but also that jurisdiction comes with doing it properly, and that's why we will be intervening in those um, uh, in the judicial reviews for the six judicial reviews for um, what's proceeding in the courts, and why we hope to be able to have an opportunity to make that our arguments for for that Alberta perspective when it makes its way to the courts. But I mean, Alberta doesn't have the jurisdiction to say that. Well, if the federal government considers a firearm to be prohibited, it's it's not prohibited here. A province doesn't have that jurisdiction. So we're not rejecting that that law, are we? But that's in the abstract. The way that they've done it and the the reasons that they, they used for um, the, the 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 firearms that were selected, uh, we will be making arguments to to be able to intervene and, mm-hmm. and join those if the court allows us to intervene, we we have applied to. Um, and hopefully we get that opportunity to make those arguments before the courts. Right. And I mean, I, I know the term uh, assault style weapons sounds ominous. I mean, we're basically talking about semi-automatic rifles, some of which will now be prohibited. Other similar semi-automatic rifles will not be. It is somewhat nonsensical, I suppose, in a policy sense. I don't know where that, you know, becomes a constitutional matter. But what, what's the objection to the policy here? For for why we are intervening in the, yeah. uh, the six judicial reviews, well, look, I think we have to. That's now going to be before the courts, and I don't want anything that I say uh, today to prejudice our application for uh, intervener status. So, um, I think that's best left for for me to to leave uh, in to the courts. Okay, but are we talking about in a way? I think we're talking about two different things. On the one hand, you know, sort of a, opposing in principle the idea behind the ban and specifically dealing with the request to implement one aspect of this, the the buyback program. Are these kind of two separate issues? You're making a good point. They are. And uh, they were two different things that we had announced. One was our application for intervener status, but the other one, which is what Minister Mendocino now is um, speaking about publicly, is was the letter that I sent to the RCMP, letting the, the commander in charge of the RCMP in Alberta who, by the way, has, has also said to me informally that he also disagrees with what's being proposed by the federal government in taking policing resources off the streets for this. Um, and so my, my letter to the RCMP uh, advising that this is not a priority and, and something we expect to not be spent um, or distracting policing resources here in Alberta. Right. And Alberta's not the only province as well to have raised this, this concern. I mean, now we've got, I think, believe, I believe Saskatchewan and, and Manitoba. That's right. Yeah. So this isn't um, this isn't just uh, Alberta going rogue here. We are uh, thoughtfully um, making sure that we are challenging federal overreach when it comes to provincial jurisdiction, and uh, in particular their their overreach when it comes to because um, policing falls under the administration of justice, and that's clearly within our jurisdiction in the constitution. And we want to make sure that we assert that that um, jurisdiction and making sure our policing dollars go to policing, not to federal programs. Right. So, I, I mean, I don't believe the, the federal government could force the Alberta government to cooperate in, in implementing the buyback program. But to what extent can the federal government instruct the RCMP to do so? 
we uh, we understand that they they may still uh, take that that type of a step, and we'll have to wait and see if they they take that as a next step. But that would obviously be very concerning for for Albertans and for the government of Alberta if they did take those steps to um, conscript the RCMP to take such a such a step. What recourse does Alberta have in so far as the agreement that exists between Alberta and the federal government over police? Well, as we said when we announced this, that all options are on the table. Um, we will continue to consult with um, with uh, our lawyers in, in justice, but as well the the chief firearms officer uh, to to make sure that we, um, if if that's the, the the next step of the federal government, that we 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 will will consider all options uh, if that's the, the the next step that they take. Right. So, I mean, there, there are issues here around policy, issues here around, you know, jurisdiction and, and, and all of that. Those who say that this is, in, in the bigger picture, a public safety issue. And I mean, you know, Alberta cities are not immune from gun crime, as we see elsewhere in the country. How relevant is that in all of this? Not at all. This is uh, what's being targeted is firearms that were legally obtained by law-abiding Albertans, law-abiding Canadians throughout the country. And these are firearms that are mechanically no different than uh, traditional-looking shotguns and rifles. So the, the, the rhetoric that has been used by the, the Trudeau government, as well as the NDP here in Alberta, is just that. It is uh, empty rhetoric. Um, it is, um, and I think it is um, torquing language to be able to scare Canadians who don't understand um, how these these firearms are used and how they are not different than traditional-looking shotguns and rifles. And that's been really unfortunate that there have been folks who have taken that approach to this. I mean, it's unlikely the federal government's going to back down on this policy, but, you know, realistically, what's the next move here? What would you like to see from the, the federal government? Well, I'd like them to, if if they believe that gun crime is an important issue to be tackling, that they they stop uh, their process of removing mandatory minimums for people who are convicted of firearms uh, convictions, like people who are convicted of weapons trafficking, and to start targeting uh, folks who are committing gun crimes rather than law-abiding Canadians who have legally obtained uh, these firearms. Let's Let's actually have a focus on um, reducing gun crime and keeping our community safe, and in particular, to do that, not distracting our police officers by taking folks off the street who are there to keep our community safe by by implementing a program like this. All right, we'll leave it there for now, Minister Shandra. Thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Rob. Pleasure All the best. Uh, that is Tyler Shandra, Alberta's Minister of Justice and Solicitor General, uh, explaining what Alberta's position is here with regard to the federal uh, assault weapon ban. And this buyback program that will be mandatory as of, I believe, the end of October next year. Originally, the amnesty was sooner. That was extended. It was pushed back. So October of next year is when it becomes mandatory for owners of these uh, firearms to uh, sell them, basically, to hand them over and get some compensation. Uh, they have published a list of what values are assigned to which firearms, and, and it does vary. But in terms of how this is all going to be administered, we don't know. And I don't think the federal government knows. Uh, I, I can certainly agree with the minister. There's no obligation in Alberta or any other province to, to cooperate. Uh, it's entirely reasonable to me to say to the federal government, this is your idea. This is your problem to solve, not our problem to solve. If the law changes, then so be it.
You know, as it stands now, there are prohibited weapons under the law. If people are in possession of prohibited weapons illegally, then, yeah, that's, that's a crime to be dealt with. The federal government has some jurisdiction on that front. This whole scheme is being challenged in court, so we'll see if this stands up to constitutional muster. But assuming that it does, fine, fair enough. You know, after October of next year, you know, if it turns out that um, someone in Alberta is illegally possessing a, a firearm that's now prohibited, then, you know, police can deal with that. In the meantime, it's up to Ottawa to figure out how it wants to administer its uh, buyback program. Alberta's position is that's not a, a useful, it's not, <laughs> it's not useful in terms of policing priorities. That we'd rather keep police officers on the street dealing with, uh, you know, actual criminal investigations, not going around and knocking on doors and writing checks and delivering firearms or however this is going to work. What are your thoughts on that? 403-974-8255-780-496-0063. Is this a reasonable response from Ottawa? Is the, the provincial government uh, under Jason Kenney, which has criticized the idea of the Alberta Sovereignty Act approach, are they being kind of hypocritical? Like, I think there's a world of difference between saying we're going to ignore federal law and we're just going to decline an invitation from Ottawa to help implement a program. Uh, so I, I would draw a distinction there. Just about a decade ago, uh, Canada's uh, criminal code uh, sanctions around prostitution were struck down in a unanimous decision by the Supreme Court of Canada. Uh, Prostitution itself was not illegal, uh, but there were a number of laws around prostitution, like communicating for the purposes of, uh, living off the avails of. Uh, The court found that these laws had the effect of putting sex workers in greater danger was a violation of their uh, Section 7 charter rights. The court struck down those laws, gave the federal government a year to come up with new laws. So in 2014, we got new laws. The liberals said they were against those laws at the time, but they've left the status quo in place since then. Uh, So shifting the focus a little bit, but still with criminal code laws around prostitution. There's a new court challenge that's being heard in Ontario today that argues the new laws pose the same problems that they put sex workers in greater danger. So joining us to talk more about uh, this court challenge, some of the issues around uh, these laws that were brought in in 2014, and what laws and regulations around prostitution need to look like in order to protect people. We're pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Jen Clayman, who is National Coordinator with the Canadian Alliance for Sex Work Law Reform. Jen, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Well, I alluded to the Supreme Court decision in 2013. I think a lot of Canadians, you know, might might assume that, you know, we dealt with all of this almost a decade ago, but we still got many of the same issues. Talk about the status quo as it stands today and why this court case is happening. Right. Um, in 2013, uh, this, as you know, the Supreme Court of Canada determined that three of the prostitution laws were unconstitutional and recognizing the harms of criminalization on the lives and work of sex workers. Uh, Parliament, right after that struck, um, was, was faced to, uh, was faced with the challenge of thinking how to respond. And what the part, what the conservative government at the time did was create a whole new set of laws that sort of flew in the face of the decision of Bedford. And instead of creating a regime that would protect sex workers, and enhance sex workers' safety. They put forward a uh, set of laws that for the first time in Canada made sex work illegal. 
What that meant was that, and what it has continued to mean, is that sex workers have been forced to work in a context of criminalization, which ensures that sex workers are working in isolation and far from detection of law enforcement. And that isolation has grave consequences for sex workers' connection to institutions, services, social, legal, health, and otherwise. It has uh, implications for the fact that sex workers can't secure or at risk of losing uh, their homes because they're not allowed to work indoors, has risks for sex workers' families uh, who are often criminalized in the process of helping their loved ones or people at work. Um, So the context of criminalization still remains for sex workers and the victimized approach to sex workers um, through criminalization has caused really a lot of danger. There was some expectation maybe that these laws would be addressed once the Liberal government took over in 2015, based on what they had said about those laws passed in in 2014. Um, Why haven't the laws changed uh, since 2015? That's a really great question. (laughs) There was an expectation that the the current Liberal government would look at the legal regime because they had actually promised to as the bill was making its way through the uh, the court they had actually uh, the the house they had actually uh, contested the law as did the NDP party and the Green Party, um, and not only that but when the Liberals did gain power in 2015 they promised to review the sex work laws and they totally failed at that promise. Seven years later, uh, this is where we are. Um, the government was actually additionally the government was mandated through Bill C36 to review PCP after five years, which they didn't do. But seven years later, they did review it, and. When they did decide to review it, um, they came out with a report in June of uh, 2022 that actually states how dangerous the PCPA is currently for sex working. Right. Why they haven't responded is beyond me, but the fact is they keep failing at doing so, yeah. So the laws are somewhat different than they were in 2013, obviously, in, in the Bedford case. But are, are, are the principles the same here? Are we talking about no, the same the kinds of harms? That, yeah. No, the principles of the law are actually different and the laws are actually the same. Um, and so we still have 213 in the criminal code, which criminalizes the, the sale of sexual services in public. Um, we still have laws that criminalize the um, existence of third parties and the relationship with third parties. And we still have laws... Um, that make it illegal for sex workers to sell their own services. It's the objectives that have changed, and the objectives that the Conservative Party put into place um, was to see and sex work as exploitation itself and to entrench that idea into law. Right, because there's, I guess, immunity from prosecution then for sex workers who advertise and, and sell their own services. Uh, technically, the immunity exists, but the yeah. immunity is really illusory in its application because... Um, the immunity only exists in certain very, very limited conditions, and most sex workers don't work in those conditions. And additionally, a lot of sex workers actually work as um, third parties or work in context where they're supporting each other, and they get caught under third-party laws. So the immunity that exists is um, is, an, is an illusory idea, not right. actually possible in application. Right, which is perhaps then the cruel irony of these laws, which are ostensibly you know, based on the Nordic model that, that we're going to punish the, the purchasers and 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 view the the sellers as victims but you know on the one hand we're supposedly trying to protect sex workers but we have laws in place that that put them in danger right i mean this this idea of a nordic regime is just an idea and it wasn't actually implemented in canada so the idea behind the nordic regime is criminalize clients and decriminalize sex workers mm-hmm. but in reality the regime was actually just implemented into a canadian context where not only was the purchase of sexual services criminalized, but also the sale has also criminalized as well as third-party involvement. So 
So the, the lie that is told about the current regime is that sex workers are decriminalized and clients are criminalized, but that's actually not the laws that exist within the code right now. Um, and there's no evidence to demonstrate that sex workers are protected by TCPA. And when you listen to the Crown's arguments right now, it's very clear. Right. There is what's known, I guess, is the exploitation side of this, or the idea that we need to have laws in place to prevent people from being forced into uh, sex work, right? Well, that's exactly why we're in court, is because the sex workers who are bringing this case forward have been experiencing violence and have been experiencing exploitation. And that violence and exploitation is actually encouraged to uh, flourish in the context of criminalization because sex workers can't get access to mechanisms Mm -hmm. to improve their working conditions that they would otherwise have access to. So um, the, the exploit, and there are also, I mean, one of the things that people fail to see is there's also laws in the criminal code that prevent things like um, sexual assault, um, that address things like coercion, that address um, uh, uh, confinement, that address all the exploitations. There's even laws that exist around human trafficking, but the sex work laws themselves don't actually address the exploitation that sex workers are experiencing. Now, if indeed the courts rule as they did in 2013 and we strike down these laws, we're we're sort of back at square one once again. So what kind of an approach do we need? Ultimately, it's going to fall to government to to craft laws or regulations uh, around sex work. What, What does that need to look like? I mean, in, like I said, in June 2022, um, this parliament just released a report because they just looked at PCPA. They looked at sex work laws. And in their report, the first thing they say is that they recognize that PCPA is harmful to sex workers. I think that's a really important statement that they made um, because they recognize that when sex workers are forced into a context of criminalization and criminality, um, they can't get access to support and their health, their safety and their autonomy is actually violated. So. Um, what needs to happen is what sex workers across the country and, frankly, across the globe have been asking for for more than 40 years, and that is a, uh, a decriminalization regime where sex work is not regulated by criminal law, but is instead regulated by public health, by occupational health and safety, by employment law, and by all the different mechanisms that other people who are earning money um, through different body work or any sort of service have access to. Right. And I, I think at the time there was, and maybe there still is, uh, you know, kind of a moralistic argument in all of this that shapes how our lawmakers approach it, that there should not be sex work or that prostitution is, is quote unquote, bad or immoral. How sure. relevant are, are, is that in, in the context of, of laws that, that protect people in this? Right. I mean, the, mor- the, the morality of sex work is what is driving the conversation, whether that's sure. explicit or implicit. Um, but uh, the, we have a thriving sex industry. We have for, I would argue, centuries. Um, and so there's a lot of hypocrisy behind that morality discussion because a lot of the people who are in one moment talking about the morality of sex work in the next moment are actually clients of sex workers. So um, there's a deeper conversation about hypocrisy in sex and how and when people have it that needs to happen. Um, but sex itself isn't exploitative, and I think that's the problem is this idea that sex needs to happen in certain ways. And so when you add money into the sexual exchange, it's not, that's not what makes it exploitative. Um, it's, it's, it's the context in which people actually sell sex that, that, that can be exploitative, and that flourishes in the context of criminalization. So um, the conversations that need to happen um, are sort of linked into how people understand sexuality. But, but you ask is it even relevant? And I would say no, uh, for the most part. You know, when we think about when this government um, decriminalized homosexuality, and that was only recently, it was way later than 1984, as they will claim, um, 
or 64, pardon me, around this time that they would claim because they hadn't removed laws around anal sex out of the criminal code just yet. But whether people agree or not that homosexual sex is okay shouldn't be the crux of the conversation. What should be the crux is what are the impacts of the laws on a particular community. Important point. We'll see how this case plays out. Much more is mentioned. Sexworklawreform.com. Jen, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. That's uh, Jen Clayman with the Canadian Alliance for Sex Work Law Reform, National Coordinator. Uh, They're one of the groups in court challenging uh, these laws. And maybe we're headed to a similar decision that we got in 2013 of putting us back at square one. I'm not sure why the Liberals broke their promise to go back and address these laws, because I I do think they create a lot of the same problems. Like, What is it we're trying to do? What do we see as the objective of these laws? Because sex work itself isn't illegal, but we have all of these laws Uh, that just make it more dangerous is the ultimate impact. So what do we expect these laws to achieve? How is it that we view prostitution or sex work? Is it criminal? Should it be considered criminal? Is it a crime to, to give somebody money for sex? Look, there is no doubt that our healthcare system is under tremendous pressure right now, and it's not unique to Alberta in fairness, but it uh, is a factor here in Alberta. And it's likely to get worse as we get into the fall and winter months here. We see increased burden, for example, uh, from COVID, from influenza, from respiratory diseases. Uh, Situation in Red Deer, uh, particularly acute at the moment. There was a a photo that uh, went viral on social media over the weekend, a um, a photo of the, the sign that awaited those entering the Red Deer Regional Hospital over the weekend. Estimated time to see a doctor from check-in at one point was posted at 17 hours and 49 minutes. Imagine walking into a hospital and encountering that. That's a pretty stressful situation. And I would imagine a lot of people encountering that would maybe turn around and go home. Maybe it's not such a big deal, whatever this is, that I think I need to see a doctor about. That's a concern. And it's a pretty stressful situation, obviously, to, to be waiting for that long, to be waiting with a loved one for that long. You know, never mind the logistics of parking or meals or, or anything else. So that's a concern. But it goes beyond just that. In fact, there's a, a letter uh, to Alberta health officials from several of the top doctors at the Red Deer Regional Hospital Center warning that the surgery program could be on the brink of collapse. I say, if urgent action is not taken to rectify the shortage we are facing, we will be unable to continue caring for the nearly 500,000 Central Alberta residents who depend on our Center for Surgical Care. The repercussions of such a collapse will be catastrophic for both the health system and for patient care. And we need immediate measures taken to prevent this. So how close are we to that? And, and how did it get this bad? Well, joining us uh, to talk about the situation, uh, someone who's uh, on the front lines there in Red Deer, uh, Dr. Ravin Bastian-Pile is a urologist at Red Deer Regional Hospital Center. Doctor, good to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Rob. Okay, so from, from your perspective, like I say, I mean, you, you work in this hospital, you see the situation on a da- daily basis. How, how serious is this? I'd say it's pretty serious, Rob. Um, this has been a slowly brewing problem. Uh, that's been uh, an issue with Red Deer Regional Hospital and Central Zone at large uh, for the better part of the past decade, I would say. Um, and it really stems from a chronic lack of uh, funding in terms of infrastructure and human resources uh, to our hospital. Um, what that basically means is from a surgical standpoint, um, we don't have enough anesthesiologists and nursing staff um, 
that uh, are projected to work in October and beyond. And uh, as you can imagine, without having anesthesiologists and nurses, we won't be able to perform uh, the, re- the requisite number of operations that we would need to. Right. Um, just to kind of put this into a bit more perspective and take a bit of a deeper dive, um, you know, as you know, there are, there are, generally speaking, there are two types of operations we do in the OR. One, one is an elective surgery, and the other type is an emergency surgery. Elective surgeries are surgeries that are scheduled ahead of time for semi-urgent issues, such mm-hmm. as joints or hips or cancer operations. And so those are scheduled, and, you know, we have a certain number that we complete per month. And then you have emergency surgeries. So those are surgeries for patients who come in with an acute issue, such as appendicitis or a kidney stone or a broken bone. And those surgeries are done, you know, immediately within the span of um, a few hours or a few days. As it stands right now, and this is not an issue just specific to Red Deer, but throughout the province and the country at large, we've had to cut back on the number of elective surgeries uh, that we, we are supposed to be doing just due to, again, infrastructure and lack of human resources and that's especially bad in red deer um we were just told actually this past month in in this, this upcoming month in october that uh, that we would have to cancel uh, a number of our elective surgery days that were previously booked because we just don't have enough anesthesiologists and nurses to run them so um that's that's of course a huge issue but what what's even more concerning to us rob is that uh, coming up in October and beyond, we have such a low number of anesthesiologists that we might not be even able to uh, perform emergency surgeries um, intermittently over the past, over over the next few months. Uh, So that basically means any type of emergency operation, if we don't have any anesthesiologists to cover that surgery, they would not be able to be done at Red Deer Hospital. And of course, they would have to be uh, diverted up to Edmonton and Calgary. And it's not like Edmonton and Calgary have a tremendous amount of capacity to take that volume on. They themselves are overburdened and overworked as well. So um, that's especially concerning to us as surgeons. And so that's kind of why, uh, you know, a, a number of our colleagues, we got together, we identified this upcoming lapse in coverage, we drafted the letter, and we sent the letter specifically to AHS um, Alberta Health Services leadership and the government to hopefully come up with a solution before we get to the point where we are forced to do something like a diversion. Well, it was interesting. I saw a quote from, from one of the anesthesiologists there, and he said at other hospitals he's worked at, you know, he says there's an average of about 10 emergency surgeries daily. And Red Deer, that number is like six times higher, like 60 emergency yeah. surgeries a day. So is yeah. there more pressure on emergency services, emergency surgery services? Yeah, so just to clarify those uh, numbers there, so um, the anesthesiologist is absolutely right. So at, at most hospitals in, I would say, the province and the country, um, our emergency surgery list, again, those are the list of surgery patients who have an acute condition that needs to have their surgery done within a few hours or a few days. That list of patients on an average daily basis is roughly between 5 to 10 at most hospitals. Um, and that's a safe number, right? Because you can you can have a steady state of emergency room or of emergency cases as long as it's kept at five to ten. You can do them in a safe and timely fashion, so you can help people that come in with these urgent issues. Our hospital at Red Deer has, on average, between twenty to forty emergency surgery cases every day, and that's been an issue for the past number of years, which is 
quite dangerous, actually, because that basically means that at any given time in the operating room in Red Deer, there are 20 to 40 people who are waiting to have not an elective surgery, an emergency surgery. Again, kidney stones, acute life-threatening issues, those types of things. They are, they are, there's an overwhelming number of patients on that emergency surgery list, uh, which is the largest list, you know, the largest number I've seen in any hospital in Canada. And that's not safe. And what the anesthesiologist was quoting is that a few weeks ago, our list topped close to 60 patients. Again, just think about it. That's 60 patients who are waiting, either admitted to hospital or in the emergency room, who are waiting to get an emergency surgery done at this hospital. So those numbers are very unsafe. And of course, the biggest concern that we have is these patients who are waiting on the emergency surgery list, waiting for the their chance to come into the operating room to have their issue dealt with. There's a chance that if they wait and wait and wait, their situation might get worse and their condition may deteriorate. And so that's that's why, you know, as surgeons and our anesthesiology and nursing colleagues as well, we've all been under a tremendous amount of stress to deal with these emergency surgery cases such that we can get these patients done in a timely and safe manner. But we need to have more resources injected into our hospital in order to get that done. And again, that means more infrastructure, meaning more beds at our hospital, and currently more nursing staff, both uh, in the OR as well as in the emergency department. And lastly, um, more anesthesiologists to help run those uh, those those operations. Right. Um, Red Deer, if you you know, just just to kind of put this into perspective, Red Deer is the main siphoning regional hospital in central Alberta, and we service roughly 500,000 people. So all of these smaller peripheral hospitals, they they kind of they kind of push patients towards us to get these procedures done. So we handle a tremendous amount of volume, and I believe our emergency room is the third busiest emergency room in the province. So with those numbers in perspective, you know, we definitely need much more resources and infrastructure and extra personnel to get the job done. And, you know, we are doing that on a daily basis. We are providing, I would say, really exceptional care given the general lack of resources. But we're getting to the point where it's just becoming a bit too much uh, to bear. Right. And I guess kind of the odd aspect of all of this, I, I mean, I guess it's one positive aspect. I mean, there, there are enough surgeons there, as I understand, to handle the volume, but that kind of becomes a moot point. If you don't have the anesthesiologist, you don't have the nurses. That's exactly it, Rob. So as it stands right now, in, in at the present time, we do have an adequate number of surgeons to get the job done. But in order for every operation to be successfully run, there are three components, right? There's the surgeon, there's the anesthesiologist to help put them to sleep. And then there's the uh, very critical nursing staff to help um, bring that patient in, through, and out of the operating room. And if any one of those three components are not present, we cannot run a successful operation. And as it stands right now, two of those components, which is the anesthesia component and the nursing component, are both um, lacking greatly and that's where the upcoming lapse in coverage is projected for for october and beyond now there was a statement from from the health minister provided to global news says uh, in part here job offers have been extended to two new anesthesiologists for red deer regional health center in the last week and another five recruits are in various stages of assessments and credentialing two more positions are also in the process of being posted so is it your sense that maybe there is some movement on this or you know is the letter meant to to speed this along yeah, absolutely. So I'm, 
I'm encouraged by that. I'm encouraged that uh, the government and AHS is taking the necessary measures to kind of rectify the situation. Uh, I think, you know, hopefully the letter has um, been an extra um, an extra layer of uh, petitioning to get those extra resources. But, um, you know, just to kind of, again, put things into perspective, Edmonton and Calgary um, have roughly anywhere from, you know, 90 uh, to 100 plus anesthesiologists working in the various hospitals uh, within their respective zones. In Red Deer, we have roughly nine to ten, nine to ten anesthesiologists. So um, it, it, it's a significant deficit, uh, which means that a significant injection of resources needs to be put in for us to be able to make up for the deficit. And so, yeah, it's very, as, uh, while it's very reassuring that there's two potential anesthesiologists that have been um, identified for recruitment and a number of others that are in various stages of the registration process, you know, we we need solutions ASAP, like within the next few weeks. Um, again, I think our all of my colleagues and uh, all of our nursing colleagues have been quite um, appreciative of the recent uh, announcement of the $1.8 billion uh, capital expansion to our hospital that was announced a few months ago. That, that, that's very encouraging. Mm-hmm. But our issue is uh, right now, we are in such a massive deficit of uh, beds and people that uh, we're worried about what's going to happen in the next few months. The $1.8 billion expansion you know, will probably come to fruition. The shovels will hit the ground in the next five to 10 years or so. But what we're worried is you know, what's going to happen in the next few weeks or the next few months and how are we going to make it through that period? That's, that's where the, uh, the concern and then the letter came from. All right. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Dr. Bastian Pillay, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate this. Thanks for having me, Rob. All the best. Uh, Dr. Robin uh, Bastian Pillay is an urologist at the Red Deer Regional Hospital Center. So one of the doctors who signed this letter kind of pleading with the province uh, to provide them with the resources they need. They've already had to postpone a number of elective surgeries. You know, they're kind of on the brink um, of this now affecting the capacity to offer emergency surgeries. Like that, that's, that's not really an option for hospitals, is it? What would you say to someone who comes in and is in need of emergency surgery? Well, we don't have an anesthesiologist. Sorry. Well, then what? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.